Welcome to the Sleep Roundtable podcast. Each week leading up to the 10th annual Sleep Roundtable, I'll be chatting with one of this year's renowned industry expert speakers. If you haven't already, be sure to get registered for the Roundtable. It's the leading dental sleep conference for sleep dentists and their teams. And it's in Dallas on October 7th through 10th. Go to sleeproundtable.com to get registered. Now sit back and get ready to learn a thing or two in preparation for this year's highly anticipated Sleep Roundtable. Enjoy. All right, today I'm speaking with Dr. Carla Austin. She's a licensed psychologist who specializes in marriage and family, sleep disorders, and ADHD. I'm really looking forward to chatting with her today about the important relationship between mental health and sleep. Dr. Austin, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. Now, I know you've been treating patients for over 35 years in your private practice, um, but you've also lectured on things like brain chemistry and addiction issues. And you've spent some time in prison. Tell us more about uh, that. I was working there. <laughs> yes, but I got to conduct groups with a lot of the inmates. And I helped them with sleep and with their relationships and addictions and things like that. We know that sleep and mental health are intrinsically connected. And you've known this for years. We've all known it. Um, I mean, in many ways, it's, it's bi-directional. We're always learning more about it. But... In what ways do you most frequently see sleep entering the equation with your patients? I know that very often they come in and, and a large problem is sleep. So, and they probably seek you out before they may even seek out a sleep specialist of any kind. Yes, sometimes one of their main complaints is sleep, but more often it's going to be anxiety or depression or a mood, a bipolar disorder, a mood disorder, or a relationship problem, or an addiction, or any number of things, problems at work, can't focus, ADHD, it goes on and on and on. But what I know is that if you're not getting a good quality sleep on a regular basis, that increases the likelihood of you having every kind of mental health disorder as well as every kind of physical disorder. So it, it comes quickly into the equation of what we talk about because it matters. A lady I talked to earlier today, she's averaging between four and a half and seven hours of sleep. And she's diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. So no one has put her on a mood stabilizer and We've got to take care of her mental disorder, but no matter what we do for that, if we don't fix her sleep, there's a problem. And so right now I've got to figure out how much of that sleep disorder is because of some mania that may be going on or how much of that sleep disorder may be otherwise involved, may, may have to do with apnea, may have to do with something else. Well, okay, so you mentioned addictions. So... I'll admit, I'm not good at, at reading people and, and saying, you look like you're addicted to something. And I think a lot of times they won't say that on their health history. No. You know, I, I think probably patients guard that information pretty closely. Yes. So are there any telltale signs that we could see in our patients that might let us in on? Uh, well, I mean, you, you might recognize a, a more extreme drug addiction because you may see bloodshot eyes and, you know, other symptoms that make that clear. But 
you know, a lot of addictions aren't going to show on the outside. You know, it might be a, a pornography addiction and that may, may just lead to bad habits. You know, maybe they wait till the spouse is asleep and then they stay up involved in, in their porn. And so they're not getting enough sleep. And so now they're, they're irritable, they're edgy, they're, you know, well, what do you blame the porn? Do you blame the lack of sleep? Is it both? Sometimes it's that kind of thing. Sometimes it's, sometimes they're mainlining caffeine. And, you know, even that's the thing that you're not always going to know. And, or they don't realize. I know somebody recently, she was off of caffeine, but then she goes, oh, it's my energy drinks. And so it, she was drinking a pre-workout before she worked out. Only she was doing this a lot and she was really into her pre-workout. And so it was this caffeine that was going. So it might be that there's something like the caffeine thing going. It may be alcohol. You know, people have been led to believe that alcohol helps them sleep. And alcohol is one of the worst things for sleep. So if it's too close to bed. So a lot of times it's breaking those habits, helping them understand what works and what doesn't. Sometimes it's, it's marijuana. And that's certainly something that they're not, not going to tell everyone. But that along with alcohol, they make the top two in the worst things for your sleep. Well, you know, we... we ask that question on our health history we say how what what do, do you drink alcoholic beverage and then and on our specific one it asks if they drink spirits or wine and i would say 90 percent of the time they say in the affirmative that they do one or the other um, i do believe that they underreport how much they drink because when we also ask how how often or how much you drink and when you know, yeah and the when. So do you have success if somebody does have some insomnia, for example, or they wake up at three o'clock every morning and you notice and you know that they're drinking alcohol right before sleep to get to sleep, but then they wake up halfway through the night. Um, do you have any success in getting people not to do that? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, you know, some are getting up and sleep eating. So... <laughs> Other good problem. But yes, because sleep is something that is so valued that a lot of times people will give up things that they wouldn't otherwise give up if they understand it's connected to their poor sleep. Because they can see, and, and when they learn, when they learn what poor sleep does to their physical health and to their mental health, they're a little more motivated. It's helping them understand, helping them know what it's worth. So, you know, with alcohol, I'll just help them understand, you know, it's fine if you drink. You just need at least two hours between every drink and bed. So if you have two drinks, it needs to be four hours before bed or three drinks at six hours before bed. You know, and I can explain them, you know, how fast caffeine metabolizes and how that that uh, changes as we age. So there's just a lot of things about things people get addicted to. Sometimes it's just TV. It's just TV. It's staying up late at night. Yeah. It's just habits. I'll admit that I'm not the best. I concentrate on the snoring and the sleep apnea. And, you know, I'm not the best at if I see that they drink alcohol of any kind saying, OK, when exactly do you drink this? Uh, and many of them, the vast majority of my patients have some kind of insomnia. But it's why I think that we really and I've written articles on this, how collaboration with the medical industry and, and different healthcare practitioners 
is so important because these diseases don't happen in a silo. It's, they're all interconnected. What role do psychologists have in looking for signs of sleep disordered breathing? Um, what, what should the psychologist be looking for and should they be finding a dentist that does this or, or a, a sleep physician? Absolutely. And not all psychologists know this. I think, you know, when you're looking for a professional to work with, you're either going to have to educate them or you're going to have to find someone who is educated to understand this. You know, for me, I'm going to refer someone and I, and I do quite often if they are getting enough sleep, but they're still tired. If they aren't getting sleep and I've ruled out some of the other causes, you know, we've already gotten rid of their caffeine. We've already you know, made sure there's no alcohol. We're following good sleep hygiene. We're, you know, right down the line and we're still not sleeping well. Or if there's a bed partner or they've been told uh, that there's any form of snoring. Uh, one woman was telling me she's having panic. She, she's waking up in panic, thinking it's a panic attack. And so I, I told her, you know, are you sure that's not reflux? You know, she just knows she's waking up in a panic. And I said, well, sometimes. Sometimes it's reflux and sometimes it's apnea and people don't realize that. But when it happens, they can wake up in a jolt and in a panic. And so uh, I've referred her for a sleep study. And it may be that it's a panic attack she's having in the middle of the night, but it may be that it's caused from apnea, which reflux is often caused by apnea. And it's a big clue to me that there's likely apnea there. You know, a lot of people, they don't want to identify with the word snoring. A thing you probably have to get around a lot is well women purr uh, men snore so there's a difference that's right and i think you know when when a woman says i don't snore and the husband says yeah you do <laughs> i think you know you you can help by either smiling and saying nothing or by saying you know well if you're purring maybe on occasion <laughs> i think you can make it better yeah, so along those lines, we do have couples that come in a lot. I don't do dentistry anymore, but um, I remember back when I did do dentistry, I never had couples in the room at the same time. It just didn't happen. But in this field, they're together a lot. And there's multiple reasons, but I think largely it's because that bed partner knows more about how that person sleeps. I had one today, and his... His HI was 101, triple severe, and he didn't know it, but his wife sees it all the time. However, sometimes they get into little conflagrations with each other. It, it can become a little bit tense, and we're not taught psychology in dental school. Do we just sit back and let it happen? Do we... Do we break them up and sit between them? And No, I think usually in a, in a setting like that, it's going to be kind of a playful jest. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, usually I know what you mean. It's going to be a playful jest. So, you know, there's probably some comeback that you could come up with. You know, well, you know, in the nighttime, we're not always sure what's happening. You know, that's why we do these sleep studies. You know, so something that just sort of is is disarming, that doesn't take a side, but just pursues analysis. Yeah, us uh, dentists, we don't deal with conflict very well. And, and yeah, I worry about taking sides. That's exactly what my concern is sometimes. And so I have to really think about what I'm gonna say before I say it because. 
And you don't want to take sides. You don't want to say, now, if she says you're snoring, you're probably snoring. You don't want to do that. But you can say, you know, that's why we do these tests, because the tests help really help us understand what's happening. And lots of times we don't realize what's happening to ourselves when we sleep. We just we just can't tell. All right. So back to mental health professionals. How do we know by, you know, we're talking to a patient and they, they come in for snoring, but they've got insomnia. Um, they've got other health issues. What's the best kind of patient to talk to about needing to see somebody for their mental health? I mean, what should we be looking for? Is there a specific list of questions on our health history that would help us? You definitely want to refer anyone where it's not making sense, where maybe they came to you, even did a test, and didn't have very severe apnea, but they came to you. That means they need more help. If they indicate any issues with anything on your, and I'm trying to think of what questions might make sense. Um, maybe stress. If you could have them rate their stress on a scale of one to 10, you know, something like that, that would indicate, you know, somebody that's under more stress, you know, that would be, then, then you could say, you know, I noticed you indicated a, a good amount of stress in your, in your life. Uh, have, have you ever considered talking to a mental health professional to help you with both your sleep and your stress? You know, something like that. They're not going to report specifics, but they'll report stress. Well, and I know, you know, insomnia is the bane of our existence in this world. We, we know how to fix snoring. We know how to fix sleep apnea, you know, it, whether it's with an appliance or a pap machine. But then you, you, you fix their snoring, you fix their sleep apnea, and they still wake up two or three times in the middle of the night, especially sleep onset insomnia. I've, I've always perceived that that might be the best kind of patient to send to a therapist if they've got sleep onset insomnia rather than sleep maintenance. For sure. Although, although even the sleep maintenance ones, you know, you're going to find things. Uh, sometimes it's going to be the medications they've been prescribed. You know, things like, like the way melatonin affects a lot of people. It might help them fall asleep, but it's going to make them wake up too early. And that's not the same for everyone, but for many people that happens. So if I've got somebody, I know they're taking melatonin, they're waking up too early. I'm going to think it's the melatonin and I'm going to look for something else. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend some other things that aren't going to do that. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time investigating, uh, you know, amino acids and, and things from the health food store that can help us that don't leave you with all those side effects. You know, any psychotropics, if they're taking sleep medicines, you know, there's all the side effects, all the things they're going to have from any of those. I, you know, when I send them to a doctor for any kind of medication, I encourage them not to get sleep medicine. <laughs> Just beg them not to do that. But when they come to me already on Ambien or already on Trazodone or already on something, then we have to work on that. And I've had people, you know, have some real trouble getting off their sleep medicine. Some, they're, they're addicted to that sleep medicine, and it's tough. But we can't fix their sleep till we get them off that sleep medicine. I would say a healthy percentage of our patients are on some kind of sleep aid. Whether it's, and many times it's trazodone, it seems to be the most common, but they're taking a number of other things as well, and they've tried it. 
And most of them have already tried melatonin. And in fact, it seems like most of my patients say they've already cut out the caffeine. I, I think they're telling me the truth. I don't know why they would lie about that necessarily. Well, because they're saying they cut out the caffeine right before bed. Well, no, I no, I do ask them. I say, when is the last time you have caffeine during the day? So a common problem that we have, um, sometimes our patients come in and they're already sleeping apart from their partner. And unfortunately, they've set up this comfortable environment in, their, in the other room. They have their own dog or the absence of the dog. They, they're 15 pillows. They're... They can go to bed at the right time. They don't have the TV blaring when they're trying to go to sleep anymore. Right. So, but, but then, you know, we stop the snoring, we fix them, and they're so comfortable they don't get back together. Now, I know I've read some research about couples that sleep together will actually live longer because of pheromone transfers and stuff. But um, is there, can you think of any way that we could help people get back together? How could we somehow convince them? Yeah, well, it's, it's a lot like COVID. People don't want to get back to the office. They don't want to leave their comfort. I'm seeing a ton of those people. And I think, you know, I think that's a good place for therapy and a good place for, for someone like myself to be able to talk to them about the value that comes from sleeping together and about giving that a try. And, you know, when they complain about the, all the reasons they don't, then we can try to address those reasons. Well, I don't think any of us in dentistry want to be marriage and family therapists. I can tell you that. First of all, I really appreciate you chatting with us a little bit today. Um, you're going to be at the Sleep Roundtable this year, our 10th annual. You're going to be on a panel with two other psychologists. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's a very important topic that I hope everybody understands. Uh, it's, it's vital that we understand more about this and our treatment of our patients that are coming in for sleep. It, it is. It, it is for ours as well. If we want them to get better, they need to sleep. Yes, they do. All right, so for those of you that haven't registered, you can certainly hear a lot more from Dr. Austin and the other psychologists there. It is October 7th through 10th in Dallas, Texas. There'll be hundreds of sleep dentists there with their teams all around the country. So come on out and join us. We're gonna have a great meeting and you can have an up and personal conversation with the inimitable Dr. Carla Austin. Thank you very much once again for being with us today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Sleep Roundtable podcast. Don't forget to head to sleeproundtable.com to register for the 10th annual Sleep Roundtable and to subscribe to our show. See you in Dallas in October.